and his daughter constitute the greatest threat that's ever confronted this nation. Suppose lighting fires is merely the tip of the iceberg. Suppose we have a child here who someday is capable of creating a nuclear explosion simply by the power of her will. I suppose there is a little girl out there somewhere today, this morning, who has within her the power someday to crack the very planet in two like a china plate in a shooting gallery. Welcome to Now Playing's Firestarter Retrospective Series. Burn it all down, baby. Burn it all down. Part of the Now Playing Stephen King movie series. Is this experiment being done by the shop? Hosted by Arnie. I'm scientifically rational enough not to form a complete opinion based on two experiments. Stuart. Excitable man. And Jacob. I used to be like everyone else. Now I see everything. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of the series. And keep coming back as we continue looking at all the Stephen King-based movies. It does matter. Everything matters. It's all connected. These podcasts will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You have got to control this thing because it's a bad thing. You understand me? A bad thing. Listener discretion is advised. Now look, I'm going to say two words to you, and you're going to tell me everything you know about those words. Charlene McGee. Today we're discussing Firestarter, starring David Keith, Drew Barrymore, Freddie Jones, Heather Locklear, Martin Sheen, George C. Scott, Art Carney, Louise Fletcher, directed by Mark L. Lester. This is the now playing co-host that's burning for you, Arnie. Stuart in LA. This is Jacob. And if I do something bad, will you still love me? Yes, we still love you after Batman and Robin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we're all guilty of uh, giving something maybe we shouldn't a-, a pass. But with Stephen King, it's been a lot more red arrows than green. It's been a while since we've been back to King territory. And I feel like, well, can I go ahead and say it? Is Stephen King starting to repeat himself? I thought we already covered a movie about a psychic girl that burned everything down. Well, first, I think we need to provide a little bit of context text for this because we're going in order of King's publication. We're not going in order of the movies. So we've covered so many more movies than actually existed when this film came out. But yes, this was his sixth novel. And by this point, his filmography was really starting to kick in. This came out just a little bit after Cat's Eye and Children of the Corn 1 and... Cujo, but just being his sixth novel, if it feels a little bit like Carrie Jr., well, yeah, that's the way the book comes off, too. Yeah, and I couldn't remember. The funny thing about Firestarter is I think I read it, and I think I saw it, but when I thought about it, I couldn't really remember what happened. I did go back. I did reread it just a couple weeks ago so I could refamiliarize myself, but I couldn't remember what happens to little Drew Barrymore. I just remember her burning Heather Locklear's oven mitts. (laughs) Yeah, this one's totally new to me. Haven't read it. Haven't seen this. I kind of know of its reputation. Was was Drew Barrymore a drunk by this time? Or is that still a year or two away? Ah, no. She's only nine when this film came out. Oh, so a whole three years off. Yeah, exactly. She's still playing with dolls. All right. Now, I have seen Firestarter so many times. I cannot count. 
I barely needed to watch it for this movie. I rewatched it, I think the last time I saw it, actually, in full. I mean, I've seen the end a lot. It's on TV a lot. But the last time I watched it, beginning to end, was probably in 2001 when I was prepping for the sequel. <laughs> uh, which we'll get to next week. I was doing retrospectives long before now playing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, that's why we're doing the show, is because you always are excited about the next chapter, even when it is a sci-fi movie that no one else saw. <laughs> so I rewatched it then. I also had read this novel a long time ago, and I reread it. You will be able to hear my review at Books and Nachos. Now, I know listeners are kind of putting my feet in the fire for being late on the dead zone, there's reasons, I won't go into them, but The Dead Zone will be coming out very soon, and Firestarter a week after that. So, I promise that you'll hear my full thoughts on the book, but, God, you're gonna hear my full thoughts on the book during this movie. It's almost, <laughs> they just ripped pages from the book, handed it to actors, and said go. Yeah, that was the surprise, is reading the book, I remember feeling like, I can't remember what happens after she gets caught. Oh, nothing, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the surprise is that, yeah, this really is, it feels like an abrupt story. I know King wasn't a big fan of Carrie, that he personally feels like that novel is not a particularly good one when he surveys his own work, right? Is this all that he wanted to do was just rewrite Carrie in a way that he could maybe continue on in sequels? And was there going to be a Charlie future that Carrie never was going to have? No. He's an author who comes up with his stories through just whimsical ideas that he mashes together. Yeah, he folds a sheet and comes up with the mangler. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in a way. But Firestarter was a mixture of him reading articles in the Weekly World News about spontaneous combustion and just being completely mystified and enthralled with the thought of spontaneous combustion. And around this time, King's only daughter was eight or nine years old. So he was living with a little girl and interested in spontaneous combustion. Now, my secret belief is that Stephen King is an X-Men fan. Yes, I've been starting to develop that theory as well with all these. I thought he was a horror writer, and I feel like we're getting a lot of superhero stuff. I never claim he's a horror writer. If you listen to my books and nachos... That's his reputation, though. Oh, absolutely it is. And when he had the Stephen King book club ads, there were creaky doors and black cats. But I'm classifying when I read his books what is horror and what is more sci-fi or just straight fiction. Now, he even wrote an X-Men comic in 1995 and for charity, but he was one of the authors of Heroes for Hope an X-Men book. But I think that he's an X-Men fan. The novel talks about the X-Factor. Each person gets about one power. And that's kind of what King is known for, is again, the one thing. Carrie was the telekinetic girl, and now Charlie is the fire starter. And man, I wanted this power when I was a kid. I used to play this. I never could see this movie. My parents were pretty loose with, you know, our ratings. I could usually see what I wanted to. But for some reason, I was not allowed to see this movie when it was out. <laughs> was this R-rated? Yes, it's an R-rated Drew Barrymore movie, which is very huh. frustrated for her primary audience at this time. The people that grew up on E.T. that want to see her burn the world down. I was there for her, but I was not allowed to. And so I just had to pretend in my mind for years all the adventures she could get into. I imagine it was kind of like Pippi Longstocking with a flamethrower. Did you play with matches? Is that why your parents wouldn't let you watch this? No, no, it had nothing to do with my behavior. I, I have no idea why 
this one was foreboding, and yet others like aliens were okay. But alien a okay. Yeah, I I can't tell you, but I guess they just maybe they were afraid that me watching kids do bad things, even unintentionally or not would make them do bad things. I don't know. Maybe they were crazy. Honestly, it may have just been, yeah, Stephen King, R rating. Had PG-13 existed, it would have been PG-13. Yeah, it it deserves it. When you watch this movie, there is not enough violence here to even compare with Temple of Doom out the same year. All right, Arnie, you've seen it the most. You get to do the plot. Folks, just consider this a warm-up for the Firestarter books and nachos. It really is coming. Heather Locklear's character Vicky met David Keith's character Andy McGee while they were college students, both volunteering for an experiment in the psych department where they were told they may be injected with a mild hallucinogen. Truth be told, the doctor administering the test was working for a secret government agency called The Shop, and he was injecting students with Lot 6, which he hoped would give the test subjects mild psychic powers. After the experiment, Andy and Vicky fell in love, were married, and gave birth to a little girl, Charlene, played by Drew Barrymore. But things weren't quite normal in the McGee household. Andy had the power of mind control and telekinesis, though using it gave him a headache and a bloody nose. And their little girl, Charlie, could start fires with her mind, a power that her parents tried to teach her to control, lest she kill them all. But the shop had been watching this family, and when Charlie's power is discovered, the agents move in. Andy and the girl are on the run for a long time, but eventually they're captured by John Rainbird, a one-eyed shop assassin played by George C. Scott. Father and daughter are separated, though both confined in a shop facility run by Captain Hollister, played by Martin Sheen. It seems Andy has lost his powers, and Charlie staunchly refuses to take part in the tests, until Rainbird disguises himself as an orderly and befriends Charlie. He nudges her to do their tests, and she does. Meanwhile, Andy gets with Hollister and uses his mind control to have Hollister arrange for Andy to leave with his daughter. They go to meet at the stable that night, but Rainbird senses something is wrong and hides in the loft, ready to kill both father and daughter. He does kill Hollister and shoots Andy in the neck, killing the father, allowing Charlie to unleash her fiery rage. She burns the shop down, killing Rainbird in a blaze. And then she returns to the home of an elderly couple that she had met earlier, played by Art Carney and Louise Nurse Ratchet Fletcher. And with them, she takes her story to the New York Times as credits roll. So yeah, as I already kind of indicated, coming back to this, it felt like, yes, Carrie Jr., a retread, the first time I felt like Stephen King was repeating himself. But as I got into this movie and thought about it, I actually am more excited about this setup. I got to say, I think It's actually a more interesting take on a telekinetic, pyrokinetic girl. It's right with metaphor, right? I mean, this is a generation born out of 60s drug culture and an FBI that has been meddling and wiretapping and the conspiracies of Watergate and all of that. I like the fact that instead of a little girl that's bullied, really, this is the product of the 60s. And is that going to be a monster? Is that going to be a threat? That is higher stakes for me than anything in Carrie. And there's actual proof that the government did two secret experiments on people. I didn't know if that was known when Stephen King was writing this, but it's all come out. So I don't know if that makes this better than Carrie. It's a different take, which I'm fine with. I I like that bully analogy. And yeah, if you want to do a government conspiracy testing on people related to the hippie movement and drugs, I could go with that too. Yeah, there's definitely some of that. And King is rife with that 60s 
rebellious spirit, the government paranoia, which is many cases justified, as Jacob pointed out. So he infused that certainly here with quite a bit. It's really strong in the book. And I just want to reiterate, I feel this movie is just the book. It didn't have to be this way. This was supposed to be John Carpenter's film. Oh, huh. He had worked on a treatment and a script for quite a while. He'd worked out a budget for $20 million. Then the thing came out. Now, we all cherish the thing, but... <laughs> but it was a bomb. Yes. We need to remind audiences that weren't old enough to know when it came out initially. Yeah, nobody went. And also the producers just weren't happy with the script in the first place. They gave Mark Lester a shot. He brought in Stanley Mann, a screenwriter he'd worked with before, and... They hammered out a treatment in the span of a few hours and <laughs> said, let's just do the book. And what was really shocking to me going back to the book and the movie, man, any line of dialogue in Firestarter that you think that's a great line, you got to credit King. It was from that book. I've not seen dialogue match a movie so closely that wasn't a novelization ever. Yeah, I noticed that as well. I suspected that King might have been the adapter. I was surprised to see that it was not Stephen King's name on the script. Yeah, I don't know how many great lines that I wrote down in this film, but Mark Lester, I mean, class of 84, a classic punksploitation film, Commando. Don't even say it. No. <laughs> Come on, there are some fun lines in that film. I will say it. No, there's not. I hate Arnold Schwarzenegger, but okay. I recognize that he is infinitely quoted from that movie, but not by me. <laughs> Plus, I mean, Poseidon Rex last year. I mean, just damn, this guy is good. Was that a sci-fi original? <laughs> I love him for Roller Boogie. That's the one in which uh, Linda Blair got on roller skates. Well, did they borrow the score from a Roller Boogie movie? Because this thing opens up with smooth jazz. And I'm like, this is kind of Tangerine Dream, but... No, it is Tangerine Dream. Yeah, I know. I was shocked. Like, well, I really like their score for Thief, a Michael Mann movie. and But this opening, like, smooth jazz. I thought I turned on the adult contemporary station. New Age, not smooth jazz. Big difference. Big difference. Pure moods. I'll agree, Jacob. I don't find this score to be incredibly memorable. So in my research, it shocked the hell out of me to find that CDs of this go for 60 to $150. Yeah, I, I'd say that's more because of Tangerine Dream than what they actually produced here. They're rampant fans, I'm guessing. Yeah, this is burning up the Amazon's reseller list because I was like, whoa, I was going to get the music for this podcast. And then I'm like, nope, <laughs> no. There are two scenes where I like the score, the rest. Yeah, it was a letdown. It being, eh, you know, I'm not a huge Tangerine Dream fan, but I, I have like their score work. If the internet is to be believed, all they did was send Lester some songs they'd recorded and said, use whatever you want from this tape. It's all instrumentals. They didn't see the movie. They weren't scoring the movie. They just had some tracks lying around. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> yeah, you know, those that heard our Exorcist shows might remember I famously declared them the composers of Tubular Bells. They were of that same era. They did make good mood music from the 70s. But not Tubular Bells. <laughs> no, right. They didn't do that one. That got established on the show. I was shocked, but I got over it. But I get where you'd go with this. I mean, they were still 80s. They're synth heavy. So they make sense in the 80s. And yeah, I think of Michael Mann cop movies and such. 
I think about horror movies. Yeah, it was very John Carpenter. Yes, it could work. But yeah, if we're just talking about the music here, I'm not sure that I find much about this production anything more than serviceable. I don't feel like there's ever in a moment in this entire film where I saw something really dynamically cinematic. It's all kind of just competent. And so I'm not going to damn the score, but it doesn't feel integrated with the story they're telling. That's because it wasn't. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And yeah, this setup, as you stated, is exactly how the book begins. I think it's a good way to throw us into the story. A father and daughter in trouble on the run from men in suits. How are they going to get away? And then we slowly learn their powers. I think the setup's good. I'm not sure that I feel the staging is ever very exciting. I guessed it when watching this after having done so many Dino pictures. We already reviewed Cat's Eye. We reviewed Maximum Overdrive. I knew about his soundstage and his backlot that he built in Wilmington, North Carolina. And this just looked like it. I'm like, this looks like the exact same fake city we've seen before. And then the rest of it is all indoors. So yeah, this has a staged feel if you know it. What was tricky for me is to not project my knowledge of this movie in. Like, what would you do if you didn't know that Charlie could start fires and these guys were super powered? What would this movie be like to see men in suits going after a blonde girl. That was the mindset I tried to put myself in here because I know how this whole movie's going. Then again, it's called Firestarter, Arnie. I mean, we all know. Yeah, I I knew that Drew Barrymore, because this was my first time watching. I knew she would start fires. I didn't know there were going to be other X-Men in this film, though. Like, when they're like, don't look at Andy in the eyes because he could make you do things. I'm like, whoa. Now we got, like, other psychics in here, and why is it just, like, suited goons? Like, they're just in bad 70s suits. I guess it's the early 80s, but they're just in bad suits chasing these guys around. I Maybe they had a gun? I don't know. One time they get a flat tire and happen to see him driving around. It's just, I don't even get this chase. Like, it, there doesn't seem to be any plan for this movie i you're saying they went right off the book but it's like let's go to the airport now let's rob a payphone and leave the airport it's all over the place to me and i actually was a little frustrated with the book because this entire chase is just there to tell us the backstory this is king's framing device he wants to throw us into the action he wants us to have suspense right away he wants there to be a chase but there is no point to the chase There are long interludes, exactly like the movie does, flashbacks to the Lot 6 experiments, Andy in college finding out about the experiments. The flashbacks are abbreviated in the movie, thankfully, but I was frustrated because King is building suspense in a chase that he keeps breaking or elongating through copious flashbacks. And again, knowing the story and knowing the book, I kind of had a get-on-with-it attitude. I actually think it's the editing. I actually think this movie is cut too slow, that, like, we just linger sometimes. Like, case in point, when they're trying to get away and supposedly a car is coming up and we the headlines are approaching, they're on an overpass and they tumble down and almost roll in front of a semi... The way that it's cut, we never feel like they're about to be run over. Yeah, you're right. This movie is slow. For me, it comes later and too long. It's almost two hours, and it it just can't sustain this. You're right. They could have trimmed, again, like seconds here and there, which just make it at least seem more exciting. Again, I don't know why these feds just don't hide out and wait and grab these people. I don't know why they have to chase them at this moment and capture them at this moment. There's no expediency that I feel. It's just watching people run around and have a camera film them. Well, the flashbacks do fill you in. It does take about 25 minutes, but 
they've been on the run most of Charlie's life. That basically, for a short period of time, they did live in suburbia, being watched, getting prank phone called. Making toast. Ever since mom and dad participated in Lot 6 drug experiments sometime in the early 70s, when, you know, the electric Kool-Aid acid test was going on, all of that stuff. Whenever the government was drugging people and not telling them, they signed up to participate in what seemed like an innocuous drug trip and wound up having residual powers that they passed on in the extreme to their now, what, six, seven-year-old daughter? How old is Charlie? In the book, she was eight and nine, and that's about Drew Barrymore's age here. Yeah. So she was age-appropriate, and she looked the part. I mean, yeah, let's think about it. In 1983-84, who else is more perfect for this than Drew? And I'm going to give the highest praise I have for this movie to Drew. She is adorable in this movie. And they're playing off the irony that you can't imagine a girl this cute burning down the world. That's absolutely true. I cannot imagine Drew Barrymore causing World War III. <laughs> you can say adorable, just don't say good acting. No, there's no good acting in this film. It's it's shocking how bad everything is. Well, you know, she's good enough. Oh, and I'm going to argue about bad acting front to back. There are some bad players in here, but by and large, I consider them passable. And I think Drew is really good. She doesn't ever cross into great, but really good. Yeah, as good as it needs to be. I wouldn't call her bad. Rehearsed? Yeah, does she come off a little unnatural? Well, if that's the case, you got to blame the director. I mean, no kid is an actor. They all need help and shaping by a good director. And I feel like, yeah, she has better moments than others, but she has a natural cuteness in every scene, even when she's not giving great line readings, even when it feels a little forced. I always love Drew, and I think it's an asset to this movie that they got her. And I want to feel scared when she does use her powers. We'll see early on when they're in the airport. There's a what a soldier berating his girlfriend who's pregnant, saying, "Ah, we got to break up," and she gets mad and sets his feet on fire. Like I want to feel that dichotomy there, where it's cute girl, and then she gets this rage. All they do is blow her hair a little bit. She never does much with her face. I I want to feel a rage. I love the facial expression. It's like concentration and anger. There is no facial expression. No, I think she does it right. I don't want to see her overdoing it. I don't want to see her like looking like a heavy metal guitarist gnashing her teeth and making faces. I love the way the hair floats. I don't know why it floats. I don't know what fire has to do with static electricity, but... I really think when those fire powers are going, she never looks bored. She never looks mundane. She has an intensity to her eyes that she is a gifted young actress. She rocked an E.T., and she's doing pretty good here. There's a couple scenes that she needed to be better at. The flashback where she burns Heather Locklear's hands. That's atrocious. That's like she's about to sell Mikey some cereal. That is what I wrote down, awful acting during that scene, <laughs> so you got that right. To be fair, that had to be held to film. I mean, when you're doing pyrotechnics with a child, I mean, all you need is a dog, and you have all three things that you never want to try and get onto film. I mean, yeah, complicated special effects with children. We get the point. I guess I feel that way about so much of this movie. It's not great, but we get the point. It's serviceable. And I feel we should drive home. Just because people have become very commonplace about this. 1984. No CGI. Every flame in this movie is a real flame. There wasn't even superimposition. There was some trick photography and push and pull stuff. But all of this was real. Lester has said this is the hardest shoot he's ever done. They had two fire departments on set 
every day. No one got injured the entire film, unbelievably. But it was a hell of a mess just to do all the safety precautions needed when you're literally setting people's feet on fire. Yeah, couldn't be fun. And yeah, you might want for something better. I think that if they had CGI, they could spend the time to get the take and the performance from the child. But good enough. I mean, they're all scared when things are on fire because, yeah, they're really in danger of getting third degree burned. Now, they made a change in this scene where they're robbing the payphone from the novel. And I actually think I like what they've done here a little bit better. Where we should point out, psychic powers are used to convince a payphone to give up its quarters. Well, this is what I was going to say. In the book, Charlie is slightly psychic. She has telekinetic powers, but her most powerful power is lighting fires. It's very Carrie in the book, because Carrie could also start fires and was also psychic, but her primary power was telekinesis. But here, I think because... Andy's powers are more nebulous. He can convince people to do things or convince people to see things that he can use a little bit of telekinesis to push a payphone to give it its quarters or whatever his power is. It's cleaner this way. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about scanners. I know that the David Cronenberg movie came out around the same time the book did. Nobody ripped off anybody. But yeah, I for some reason remembered this as being a horror movie that I was supposed to be scared when Drew finally lost her cool and and attacked someone. But truthfully, it feels more like just a paranoid thriller, like a conspiracy thriller or something. They're on the run, and they have the edge because she can do these things. But it's not ever really supposed to be scary. No, but this is our first fire scene is the boots. And again, I know where this movie's going. I can visualize scenes in this movie just with closing my eyes even before I rewatched it. So to see that this is the introduction to her power and to see her loathe her own power, the way Drew gives a really good performance of Disturbed. I believe she's really crying as those tears are on her cheeks. And to see someone who has this great power, the power Stuart wished for most and hates it. Yeah, and the way they really sell that, I think, I think they do something to soften it that they shouldn't. She should kill her mother, right? The fact that she burned some mitts and maybe the woman had like, you know, some pain in her fingers for a couple days is not good enough to traumatize this child. We'll find out later the shop kills Heather Locklear for reasons I can't even figure out. Why not have Drew burn her up? I thought she burned her. Like, she says a line, like, I was bad with my powers. I killed mom. And I, well, we find out, no, it's because you were born and there's some bad people chasing you because you are born that your mom died. It wasn't directly you. But I kept thinking that was her pathos, that it's because she lost control and her mom died because of that. That's a more interesting story that someone is going to have to learn to use these powers to fight the bad guys, even though she's trying to run from them because she hurt someone she loved with them. It's a totally different movie that way. and It's a better movie. I don't know that I'd agree with that. It would make Charlie more anti-heroic or more a pathological character than what we have here where I like the sweet girl, innocent girl who can start fires. And she had a risk of killing everyone in that household. I love the little minor set decoration thing that there were fire extinguishers in every room at adult height. So Charlie couldn't get them, but the parents can in any point. But I prefer the innocent girl with the power of the gods versus a girl guilt-torn because she killed her mother. I like her fear of what she might do. It interests me more that she has untapped power, and I want to know how big can her fires get. 
if she'd already given such a big fire to kill her mom, I don't know. It just changes things in not a good way for me. Yeah, I don't know that it gives too much of her powers too soon, but it does make you feel like anybody that's responsible for killing their mother seems less innocent. And since we want to celebrate cute Drew, and the irony is that cute Drew can hurt you, then don't have this at all. Don't have her mother die in childbirth or something. I don't like the fact that the shop came by one day at random after prank phone calling their home for years and stuffed her in on an ironing board. Like, why? Because King wrote it that way. <laughs> yeah, it's weak. Yeah, none of this makes sense to me. They just show up. Again, it's much like this chase, they're chasing them because they showed up and killed the mom, stuffed her in a closet... I don't even understand what the shop is going for here. I get that they think Charlie potentially, what, has the power of an atom bomb in her and they could use her as a weapon or something, but they just want to test her and then they're going to dispose of her. Like, what is the shop? The shop, we've already seen them a little bit in The Stand. This is from The Stand, yeah. I'm starting to see all this connective tissue with this one. Yeah, ironically, King wouldn't name The Stand's agency the shop until the 1990 edition of the book. But yeah, that's the shop. Here's the shop. We saw the shop in the lawnmower, man, for Christ's sake. They were the ones doing the VR experiments. Yeah, but Stephen King didn't write that. That was, yeah, <laughs> that was people trying to graft things from Stephen King and getting sued for it. But your point is that basically this is his go-to when he wants to talk about bad government. Rather than label it to a particular party or president, we always have this cabal, whatever you want to call it, this subsect of the FBI that can go and do these nefarious things. But they're specifically science-based is the key. They are looking for the next weapons. And this is something, you know, based upon actual KGB. In the book, King calls them the American KGB. And the KGB, as we saw in Crystal Skull, were trying to enhance mind powers and things like that. So here, this agency is the one looking at VR or looking at psychics and this lot six or looking at bio warfare but some way to enhance the military and jacob the point of this whole thing isn't to get charlie charlie is an anomaly the whole point is to make a thousand charlies if lot six did this she's the one success they had and they make it clear in this movie she never should have been born they should have interfered and stopped andy and vicky from getting together and having their fucked up chromosomes produce a child but since that child is born and it's so powerful well they know they can't get charlie to go nuke russia but if lot six did this they can use this to get funding to inject Lot 6 into 10,000 people, and then they could all have super kids who will blow up Russia. And we kind of get this in a long scene that comes about 25 minutes into the movie, another kind of dull scene that goes on too long, where the original administrator of the drug test, this doctor, is now hobbling on a cane, guilt-ridden, bugging the head of the shop, Martin Sheen's character, about his desire to weaponize what they shouldn't have done. Martin Sheen, he wasn't supposed to be in this film. He'd just done The Dead Zone, a Stephen King film that came out the previous year, done by De Laurentiis. But Burt Lancaster had heart surgery, they needed someone in a pinch, so Dino called Sheen, and so here he is. And he may be the entire reason King doesn't like this movie. He feels Sheen was too young. Yeah, I don't know about young, but having just reviewed Dead Zone a couple months ago and seeing how over-the-top crazy... It tells you already, if you hadn't figured it out, maybe this is not a big surprise, he's heading something evil 
And it's a prize that he never really gets the big evil moment. That I spend the whole movie waiting for Sheen to go nutball, and truly, he's kind of a pawn at the end of it. He is not the thing to be feared. That job belongs to George C. Scott and Rainbird, which I gotta say, reading the book again, this was the one element I was excited to see on the screen. I felt like it was the best character in the book. Oh, I got so many questions about Rainbird. First and foremost, is he a pedophile? Like, I don't understand his plan. He's like, I will get you Charlie, and when you're done testing her, I want her. The fact that you don't know tells me how much the filmmakers hedged. I mean, it's there. I just want to know explicitly if, if it's stated in the book, because that's the vibe I got. That's what I'm saying. In the book, I mean, I'm reading passages and going, oh my God, how are they going to film this? This is so shocking. Well, I disagree. I think the book hedges itself and says, yeah, he does say he loves her and it does come off like a romantic love, but it doesn't come off like a pedophile love. He wants to kill her the whole time. It's a predatory love. Is it fatherly? Is it romantic? Is it the love a murderer has for his victim? I'd say all of the above, but he makes it very clear, and I don't have any reason to doubt him when he speaks, that it's not sexual. He doesn't want to have sex with her. His consummation of the relationship with Charlie is by killing her. Well, when you have an old, old man like that talking about how he loves a little girl, I, I don't know. That's just what I assume. I also, here's my other question. Again, I think Rainbird, because he's named Rainbird, is supposed to be Native American. And at one point, he's like, I want the power of the gods. Like, I don't know if he thinks he could take her powers from her by killing her, if there's going to be some weird ritualistic killing. It's very muddled. That is spelled out in the book, is he wants her power, but he wants to die, too. <laughs> that doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> well, he wants the power to help him in the afterlife for all the sins he's done. Huh? Okay. You know what? It makes a lot more sense when it's a stereotypical storefront Indian character. It makes sense when you actually explain it. This is not explained in the film. They just drop lines and they never go anywhere. I'm glad you're pointing this out because having read the book, having watched the movie, I don't have that viewpoint. I just remember being a kid, being around Charlie's age when I first saw this on VHS. And just thinking George C. Scott was creepy. And when he gives his speech of what he wants to do to Charlie to break her nose and just describe so in detail straight from King's prose about the explosion in her nose that will throw shrapnel into her brain. That is a line of dialogue from this movie that stuck with me for like 30 years and I couldn't remember where I heard it, but forever, that image of breaking a nose so hard that the person dies was with me. And he was just an evil, murderous bastard. That's all I needed to get from George C. Scott, and he delivers it in spades. I wish I felt as much enthusiasm. I On the page, I felt, like you said, Jacob, I felt like there was a potential there to see this threat as anything, and that there were a lot of different ways to play this character. But most importantly... That while everyone else saw her as an, a science experiment, a test tube that could be manipulated and used for whatever purpose the shop wanted, he saw in it communion with God. And that's what made his character most interesting, was that he saw a spiritual element in what everyone else just thought was a mutation. But the way that George C. Scott plays it, I don't know, I can't help being disappointed. I felt like there was 
more there on the page than what he gets out of it. I do feel like, yeah, at the end of it, it's just about a guy who's a killer and he'll go around and kill Dr. Wanless. He'll kill the mailman. He'll just, it cheapens the character to me. He drops lines like, I want this to take to me in the afterlife. Is this the dark man from the stand? Like, is he consuming power to fight the forces of God? I don't know. And it doesn't go anywhere. So I'm, it's confusing. If you haven't read the story, his character, his motivations is what's confusing. And again, in the book, because it is just a Native American stereotype to the point that you expect one tear to come from his one eye, it's insensitive, but it works better. George C. Scott playing a character named Rainbird, that's a little bit stranger to me. He does not look Native American. Yeah, I think we'd all be better if Russell Means or yeah, somebody who conveys a Native American instantly, who is of that ethnicity 100%. Or at least Italian, like the Indian who cried that tear. Well, okay. Not everyone knows that, Jacob. But yes, you gotta, you gotta look the part. And George C. Scott, we all know him from other roles where he is not Native American. He's all American. He stands in front of the flag. That's the image of George C. Scott. Yeah. So that's a little, um, a little confusing to go with it. But then again, ethnicity is whitewashed so often by Hollywood. It's to be expected, I suppose. We're at the end of the era where, yes, other races would play races. So. That's what you're dealing with here. I did not have the confusions you did, Jacob. Like I said, having read the book where lots of dialogue is spent on this character, I felt like he was the most interesting one. He was the real threat. He was the one you wanted to play with. His scenes with Charlie were going to be the movie's best, is what I had hoped. They are the best scenes in the book. I guess the most important thing that I get from him is he's, yeah, he's the real bad guy here. When he's first introduced, he's just there. I solve problems. So I, I get that sense. He's not afraid to go after this fire starter. Everyone else, like, we'll see her setting people on fire. He doesn't seem to have that same problem. He's willing to go into danger to get her. Yeah, and in the way this movie plays it off, it could have been played by Arnold. You've already referenced Commando. He's just <laughs> the ultimate soldier here. The one who can do alone what 40 armed men couldn't do together. He's a good marksman, but it takes him forever to reload. I gotta say, he's not that impressive. It takes Lester forever to shoot that scene. Like, he's scoping out where he's gonna, like, tag Charlie and Andy with the dart gun. Then he decides to climb a tree. I'm like, why aren't we just cutting to him in a tree? Why do we have to see him find the perfect spot? Build suspense? No, it doesn't. Well, no, I'm saying that's the theory behind it. I don't, I agree it's not effective. But that's why you would do it. Yes, I, I agree. If we thought that there was a chance these two were going to get away. But I mean, we're skipping over something that should have been cut as well. There's this whole middle section in between them escaping the shop in the beginning and being at Grandpa's cabin where they've gone to a farm and there's just no point for them to hang out at this farm at all, other than it gives Charlie an opportunity to kill. Which I feel like that should be the point of this movie, watching people burn up. And that should be most of this movie. We're going to have to wait a long time to really see what I feel like should have come halfway through. But yeah, at this point, at least I'm enjoying this because this is what I thought the film was going to be. Crazy little Drew Barrymore setting people on fire. And then there's a B-movie fun aspect to that, except this movie's so damn boring. No, no, two things. I don't want a movie that's just her running around setting people on fire. That sounds like a trauma film. They got Mark Lester to direct this, so it's not much higher than one. Yeah, I, I just think that's where you're in my aesthetic differs on, you know, just I prefer films where I have characters I can connect with a bit more. And when this comes, and this is a long time coming, but it's about a half an hour in, 
after this long, dull farm scene with Nurse Ratchet and Art Carney and a hearing aid. And I'm just like, I read it in the book. I knew it was being set up, but that scene needed to play faster and we needed to get to this. But this is where the movie actually hits possibly its highest point for me is when you have all those cars there, all those people, and she starts doing her fire thing. Man, that is impressive. And this is the first time we see her power outside of oven mitts and shoes, and a lot of shit blows up. Yeah, it may be the most fire she's ever even produced. My sense is she's never gone this crazy before. What, what opportunity has she had? But the farm is surrounded, and she unleashes it. She doesn't want to. She knows it's a bad thing. She knows it can hurt. Again, I would stress, if she knew it could kill already, she'd be more reluctant. But anyway, she does it. My point is, why not have Rainbird pop out after all these guys burn up and zap them right there? Why wouldn't you bring Trank Darts to this fight? And what do we gain by having 10 more minutes of them escaping to another cabin? Yeah, the book makes it explicit. This movie, you're right, that is very confusing as to why they try to kill the Golden Goose and bring everybody in just to shoot her. I think maybe they hope if they wave guns around, they'll come quietly? They don't know how big a fire she can set. You just said... This may be the biggest she's ever done. Maybe they think that they'll get a hot foot or two, but there's enough men to deal with it. They do hypothesize earlier that once she hits puberty, though, she might have the power to, like, split the earth. But that's just that naysayer doctor. That's not anyone at the shop. Well, that's what they want her, though, to test her. I don't know. To me, if you think someone has fire powers and you plan on kidnapping her to test her, you throw on some oven mitt so you don't get burned when you go after her. Yeah, and you bring trank darts. Again, why Why not just apprehend them the way that they need to? Why did they let it go on this long? I think that's my question <laughs> for everyone involved in this production. The editor, the director, the shop. Why are you letting this go on so long? We could be really into this movie. I do feel like the setup, the father and daughter on the run, all of this is appealing enough, but it is, it's moving so slowly. Nothing's changing is the thing. And because they adapted this straight from the novel, I feel the pacing is way off in this film. It's just really weird because they didn't try to fit it to a standard movie kind of three-act structure, the book is really two acts. And that's very much what we get here. And that the middle of the first act and the beginning of the second act are both not people catching on fire, which may bore people for if that's what you're there for. Or if you're not a fan of David Keith, who, all right, he's not great. No, he's not even good. When he finds his wife stuffed in a closet, I am laughing. Like, the acting in this film, you could try to defend it. It's deplorable to me. He was not their first choice. He was who they could get. He'd just come out of an officer and a gentleman and was acclaimed for that, kind of in a supporting role there. This is what I know him from, but he's outshone by his younger co-star. Yeah, I mean, he's not good. I, I agree. He is flat. We would like to see more tension. The whole point is that he's dying. The power that she's just coming into is maybe killing him. He's getting a lot of nosebleeds, at least, and we'll later talk about blood vessels breaking in his brain or that there's something that his power is going to go in decline, or maybe his body is going to go in decline. He's used it too much. Yeah, it's, it's not clear in this movie. A lot of things about Andy aren't clear. It is not the director or screenwriter's focus to be on Andy. Movies called Firestarter, they're going to tell us a lot about Drew. When they get captured and taken to the shop, 
Andy is drugged, so he acts just like David Keith acted the whole movie, and <laughs> he supposedly loses his powers. And looking just at the movie, not the book, I've never known, is he faking it? Is it the drugs messing him up, and then when he stops taking the drugs, he gets it back? Who knows? Who cares? It's that one. It's They have scenes. No, that's what the book says. I don't get it from this movie. They, you get it in this movie when he t- goes into the bathroom out of the camera sight and spits out the pill. And then he can suddenly do it. But what I don't understand is if you brought people with psychic powers to a facility to test them, why do you give them drugs knowing that it will, it will prevent them from using said power? They were only giving them, I felt, to Andy because they didn't want him mind-controlling people to get out of there. I, I feel like you do have to somewhat subdue him. I guess they test him later to make sure that he can't mind-control anyone to let him free. They needed protection. I mean, I love the fact that the supporting people, when they finally come and claim them from the dock, they're wearing, like... <laughs> Asbestos suits, yeah. flame retardant suits. They look like the Intel bunnies. Yeah, these silver suits, they, they pop out of the bush. I'm like, they're not even camouflage. How did Charlie and Andy not even see like these 50 guys in silver asbestos suits waiting in the bushes? I don't know. I like the image and I do feel like it would have been helpful for the shop to have more preparation. Like we know when we put on these glasses... That you can't, that he needs to make eye contact or something. Setting rules, setting the terms for the powers. It would certainly help us feel like the shop wasn't full of idiots, really, and toadies. But I, I don't get the sense that Martin Sheen or any of his employees are really a threat. The one to fear is the Native American, and we know he's not on the government side. Yeah, I'm laughing when Martin Sheen, they're trying to convince Charlie to test her powers by giving her a Cabbage Patch doll and a... ColecoVision, I'm, I'm pretty sure that was product placement. That's the one toy that had a name on it. But yeah, they're sitting there trying to give her gifts. Ironically, she's playing the E.T. video game. Is that what that was? I, I knew I recognized <laughs> those sounds. <laughs> I will say I, I've, I've slammed Barrymore's acting. I When she's acting like an angry kid here and Rainbird's going to come in and pretend to be an orderly to clean up her room. She really doesn't pay attention to him and is just throwing this fit i bought that like acting like an upset little girl she does well there but why does rainbird i okay i get he's gonna try to befriend her why does he put an eye patch on and off? like sometimes he's wearing an eye patch with her sometimes he's not i think whenever he's playing the orderly he is wearing the eye patch or he should be in order to be consistent he's not though is it a continuity error like i'm like is he supposed to have an evil twin no it's a continuity error i mean obviously this is a character that he's performing i mean that's that's obvious he's playing someone that has been hurt so that it will engage her sympathies. If you saw a scene with him standing next to Drew and he's not wearing the patch, then yes, somebody, the script supervisor, didn't do their job. Okay. (laughs) Continuity here, then. But again, these are the scenes that I like. I don't feel like the chemistry is really... I want to be creeped out, you know? I want to feel that, if not literally a child molester, I want to get the feeling that he's manipulating that girl towards something really, really heinous. And the Willie factor on George C. Scott is pretty low here. I mean, when she hugs him and all of that, I don't get the skeevies, and I should be. Yeah, the whole willy factor of the whole shop is missing for me. These are nice rooms. Yes. It almost looks like it could double for the White House. These rooms are staying. I'm I'm just not creeped out. Like, he's befriending her. That relationship's not quite creepy enough to scare me. I don't know. This goes on forever. We spend way too much time at the shop in this film, and it's never freaking me out. I agree. This is where the movie drags, and drags hard. 
there's about a half an hour between when John the Orderly convinces her to set a fire and when she had done the fires back at the farm. It's way too long, and it doesn't need to be this drawn out. I know that they set up the horses in the stable. I still can't understand why a government agency is on something that appears to be more akin to, like, Google's campus or (laughs) the Lucas Ranch. It was weird that they had a horse named Necromancer. I kept thinking that was going to be more... I thought that was going to be something more sinister than it ended up being. It was just a name of a horse. But, you know, here we are at the end already. And and this, I feel like we have to blame Stephen King for. Because, I mean, we're talking about how they're slowing the pace and this could be moving faster. But when you don't have the next section of the movie written... When you literally have to create it because the author of the source material didn't create it and wrote 400 pages of a story that doesn't have an ending. I mean, that's really the problem here. I go back to, is Firestarter a weaker movie because it hasn't been made very well? Or did they do a competent job of a not very good novel? I think that this novel is one of my favorites of King's. What? Yeah, go to Books and Nachos, and then argue with me in the forums. (laughs) I will. I wait for that, because it's actually, of all the novels that we've covered so far, my least favorite. Easily. No, no. I think the characterizations there are great, and I really was enthralled by the book. Even though I realized certain parts played out, it works better in prose than on screen. It is the fault of the screenwriter and the director that they didn't repace the book for the film that they went oh king wrote a hundred pages a quarter of the novel on this okay well let's spend a quarter of the film on this that is a bad idea yeah there's so much testing of charlie's powers in this and and at one point they're like we got it on tape we could take that to the supreme court i don't even know why they're going to show this tape to the supreme court again i don't know what the shop is trying to do except set some cinder blocks on fire yeah we were focusing obviously on the wrong character we're focusing on a child whose perspective is playing Coleco all day in a room. Doesn't even have a window outside. Occasionally goes horseback riding. I gotta ask, is there any real reason why they shouldn't participate? I mean, I understand about personal freedom and that they're prisoners and they want to live freely, but couldn't they have negotiated that? I mean, honestly, the shop isn't forcing Charlie to be any worse by making her use her power, right? I mean, she's not becoming a worse character or a more compromised moral person because she is using this power. And what I don't get from Drew's performance or this movie is something that I think King sold very well in the book, which is addiction. The second half of this book is about addiction. The father becomes addicted to the Thorazine that he's given, and Charlie becomes addicted to her power. It's a rush for her to set things on fire. Her whole reason to not do it is because she likes it. And if she's afraid, once she starts, she can't stop. By giving into this, she's basically falling over to the dark side. She's giving in to the bad part of herself to do this. And that is going to be what ultimately happens at the climax of this movie and this book. I I wouldn't say it happens at the end of this movie, because that does not come across. When she starts killing indiscriminately, that's the dark side. (laughs) No, that's her dad saying, finish this war. That's what I took it as. It's a revenge story. She's getting payback for them killing her dad. There's no sense of addiction in this film from someone that has not read the book. No, and I said it is not in the movie. And it's a hard thing to sell. But it's what made the second half of the book interesting for me, and this movie doesn't have it. I wasn't interested in the second half of the book either. Again, I I see them as having the exact same problems. 
I look at it again as a metaphor. If you're telling me that this is a generation that was force-fed drugs and has been lied to by their government and what are they going to do with the world, I would say, yeah, that actually learning how to train and use that power is a good thing. I think of her being here working with people that she trusts as being a positive thing. They're not selling me on the fear that the shop is making her something she doesn't want to be. And that's the mistake of the second half of this movie. There did need to be more of a suspense feeling. I needed to get the feeling that their lives were at stake and that the more she set fires, the closer they were coming to John finally killing her. The funny thing about this pacing is that the shop never makes a move. They talk about sending the father away to Maui, and I don't know necessarily if that's a euphemism for we're killing you. It was. Or if there literally is a beach. I don't know from this movie. <laughs> I took it as killing him. But then again, you wonder why delay it? Why don't they just come in and kill him? Like, yeah. again, why is it taking so long to make decisions? <laughs> and... It's the father deciding to break out that causes the climax of this. Stuart, you've really instilled in me the concept of the ticking clock. There isn't one here. The father's just like, okay, we're going to break out today. Right. Just as they were just captured one day, now today they're just going to get away. I mean, this stakes are very weird in this movie. In that they don't exist. Yeah. If you had somehow determined that each year... All it takes is a graph. Someone says each year she gets this stronger with her power and her birthday's coming up next week. Well, now we understand. Okay, we've got to do something about her before she turns 10. Yes, that's what this movie needed. A montage. A tangerine dream scored montage. <laughs> Who's talking about a montage? I said a graph. Well, <laughs> a graph, but I like a montage of her aging and blowing shit up. <laughs> You could do that. I do feel like she needed to get out and something needed to happen. I do feel like we're asked to think about, as her father is killed, as the man that killed her father is also killed, and everyone else is killed, we're asked to think that something is broken in her, that she is now a different character? Is she different? She's sad. I understand she's <laughs> lost her father. That's upsetting. But once she calms down, is she a different person? I don't get it from Barrymore's performance, no. So, again, it's a failing of the movie. It, the second half of this movie is really where I think things fall apart. It isn't until they finally get to the barn in the night that the father is taking control of Martin Sheen, and that was way too easy, and says, okay, you're going to help us escape. I will help you escape. Yeah, that mind control doesn't even make sense to me. It lasts so long. It's like he talks to him earlier in the day and then Martin Sheen goes about his business and is like prepping all this. He's going to send a guard to tell Charlie that, hey, there's going to be a helicopter meet at the stables. Like, I don't even understand how anything works. We did see him do it to a cabbie and then he fell asleep. So apparently these people do it without him concentrating them all the time. He doesn't need to put all of his energy on it the entire time they're doing his work. I take it as a post-hypnotic suggestion. You know, if you're hypnotized that cigarettes taste like shit, then forever it tastes like shit. If you plant something in his mind, it is there. Yeah, but it does make Martin Sheen look not very intelligent. You would figure he would have tripped up or someone would have caught him at some point and challenged this notion that he was going through. There's there's no overhead in this. I mean, this whole thing looks like Terra. I mean, it was, it's a plantation with about a staff of five. The shop is always going to fold. They don't even need Drew to come in and burn it down. It's so poorly run. I think my problem with Sheen is that he doesn't carry with him a sense of authority. He's basically playing the same 
character type as he did in the dead zone and that one he was just insane but he didn't actually have any real authority he was running for office he wasn't in office and here i just don't get that sheen is a battle-hardened businessman of a secret organization who has ordered people to be snuffed out and it's probably because he didn't get time to prep for the character he was rushed onto the set here's your lines let's go but he never sells to me that kind of backbone. And so, yeah, he comes off as wimpy and Rainbird steals the show. I feel like if you are going to tell Carrie as a small little girl, this is her prom, right? This is the thing where she's going to, yeah, Martin Sheen and, and all these men that have lied to her, maybe even her own father. She, it's time for her to grow up and realize what a real world is. She needed to learn things about these characters in this climax that made you feel like she was a more mature person walking out of this. Otherwise, it's just a big firefight, which, judging on that, it's not bad. I mean, I like the fireballs. Oh, yeah, the fireballs oh, are cool. I, I laugh, but yeah, there is a camp to this because it's pretty low rent, but I'm enjoying it. Like, the way they animate those bullets to be melting before they hit her, and when that first fireball came out, I didn't know we were getting a Super Mario remake <laughs> here, but... They don't bounce. I do love the way, like, some of the bodies react. These dummies they use, like, at 1.1 gets shot. It just kind of goes up at, like, a 90-degree angle up into a tree. Again, I think I came in with the lowest of expectations. I was expecting an, a fun, just campy B-movie about a girl that starts fires. I feel like this is the point where I got that. Yeah, I mean, keep in mind, this was a $15 million film, not a $50 million film, even in 80s money. So... They couldn't have that B-movie you apparently desperately desire it to be and are judging this for not being. But for what it is, the money they had, the way the book was written, this is an astonishing climax. I said that I've seen the end of this movie a lot because it's on TV. And yeah, if it's on TV, I half pay attention during the John talks to Charlie scenes. But when the barn comes, it has my full attention. It's a good climax. I got no real complaint other than it goes on too long. No, no, no. <laughs> It's like sex. When it's over, it's always too soon. Uh, this movie isn't like sex that I've had, but... Mm, yeah. <laughs> and may I never. Is this like having sex with someone with a syphilis because you're burning afterwards? <laughs> I'm just saying this end scene, not the whole movie. I mean, the foreplay sucked, but... Yeah, I get it. You can't get enough of this, of watching her burn that evil smiling doctor, Dr. Pinchot, that clearly exists just so... He can smile and, and get retribution, you know, that's, yeah, there's a lot of puppets that they've propped up for her to knock down here in the climax. And seeing George C. Scott get it while screaming, I love you, Charlie, I, I just really like that. I thought that was good for the character, that he knew it was going to happen, that he tries to shoot her. The first bullet she deflects is his. He was ready to kill her and watch her die, and when he realized that this was a price he'd have to pay, and he went into this well-knowing this is how it might go, that his last words are, I love you, Charlie, poetic. I wish I felt that way. I, it could have been that way, but through direction, performance, staging, I didn't get what I wanted to out of this relationship. And... I just love what they do with Drew's hair. The way that they make it kind of flare up is really, really well done. A blow dryer? <laughs> but it's got to be like four <laughs> blow dryers. <laughs> maybe, maybe two. <laughs> I don't know. If they plug in four, they're going to blow a circuit. <laughs> but yeah, after this is done, I have to wonder how she got back to that farm. because <laughs> She hitchhiked, apparently. Yeah. She's like just cruising with some dude. I don't know why people are picking a nine-year-old up. 
that's just begging for Chris Hansen to pop out. <laughs> but then again, she can defend herself. Yeah, we've introduced that old couple on the farm. The reason why you keep them, besides the fact that you're slavishly following the Stephen King novel. The reason they're in the novel. They were a childless couple that always wanted a little girl like this. Well, how convenient. Now you got her. Yeah, and they're going to take her to the New York Times because I guess they're going to bust the story wide open. I can't wait for the receptionist to get that one. <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> Hi, I'm here to tell you about how I can burn everything. <laughs> they try to mail them a bunch of letters that Rainbird intercepted earlier, but I guess, I don't know, she could light the receptionist cigarette and they'll know. Yeah, I don't feel like this is going to convince any, and yeah, unless she's willing to demonstrate, and then, yeah, everyone will have to flee the building. Yeah. Come on, I'm doing it, Daddy, I love you. You're not convinced she's going to save the day, blow this shop wide open? I wasn't ever trying to stop the shop. I was trying to understand her. <laughs> I think that's the misconnect here, is that suddenly it's all about taking down an evil organization that I thought was already handled. I mean, they're already burnt. Yeah, they blew it up. That is what I'm saying. I'm confused why they got to go back to the New York Times now. Yeah, I thought this movie was about Firestarter. I thought it was about Charlie, but uh, I'm not sure what it's about in the end. And I get that it is about... Charlie's freedom. The goal is to be free. The goal is to not be hunted. I personally think if she goes to the New York Times and they do run the story, okay, now everybody's going to want her locked up. I mean, remember when that nurse might have had Ebola and refused to be quarantined and how everybody reacted towards her? Imagine a girl who could crack the earth in half with her fire powers. People are not going to want her out on the streets. Maybe she shouldn't go then. Maybe this is a foolish endeavor. That's my thinking. There's so many ways you could try to tighten this up. Like, have it be that there is other survivors of Lot 6. And the shop that we saw blown up, that was just one of their branches. And so this is to save the other people from Lot. I mean, there's ways to make this make more sense, but I don't want this to go any longer. So I'm glad they're at least ending it. Well, let's not make the mistake of going too long ourselves. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Firestarter? Jacob. Again, I went in with the lowest of expectations, knowing Mark Lester. Again, class of 1984. Pretty fun revenge, punksploitation film. Not a lot going on with it. But it's fun. There seems to be competency. Like, when he did that, I don't know. This seems to be hearing the backstory with how they just copied the book and seeing these performances. Everything just seems to fall flat here. Like, everyone just failed on this film because it is long. It is boring. It's poorly acted. Tangerine Dream lets me down here. Bare minimum, I could have given this a green arrow if, if it was as fun as Maximum Overdrive. And it is not. It fails on every level to give me characters whose motivations I even understand. Even these big conspiratorial government agencies, the shop, like, at the end, I don't really know what they're about or what they're trying to accomplish. So, yeah, for me, this is a not recommend. Stuart. Yeah, and I go back to something I said earlier, which is I don't know if this is a poorly made movie or if this is a competently made movie of a bad book. But either way, I, that's probably a not recommend. I, I think I realized in listening to the conversation and hearing my own displeasure about much of this, I actually don't have much feeling one way or another about all of it, other than it's taking too long. I mean, everything's kind of bland. The performances are bland. The fire starter moments are too frequent to feel exciting. The pace of the chase. And most importantly... The lack of a climax to this story. Again, if you're going to ask me to follow this child, where does she end up? If this is a chase, where do we leave her? I'm not sure that anything pivotal has happened 
just because her father died. How is this any more upsetting than when her mother died? Honestly, they should have crafted this character. It's called Firestarter. They should have let me to believe that she had become a woman. She had become into her own with the power that she had control. Something. I wish I felt something about the Firestarter. But honestly, this is a very bland movie that overstays its welcome and really just doesn't have a point. It doesn't come to an end. It just stops. And while there are a few fun special effects, and Drew is adorable, and if you like the book, I'd actually say, yeah, go ahead and watch it. It's a decent version of the book. I think my problem is I just didn't like the book a lot, so not recommend. And I like the book, and you'll be able to hear my full analysis of it at booksandnachos.com soonish. But as for the movie, judging it just by the movie, it's a recommend. It is middle-of-the-road king, and admittedly, my review may be tinged with nostalgia. I've grown up with this film. I know what to expect when I watch this film. I know where its high points are. I know where it drags. Even when it drags, I really enjoy George C. Scott and Drew in this. Those two, I think, do well. The rest, not so well to, yeah, piss poor. But those two carry those scenes when they're in the apartment where Drew is living. Except when George C. Scott's screaming he doesn't like the dark. He couldn't pull that off. I never bought it. Beyond that, I thought they were good. I think the pyrotechnics are really fun to watch. I enjoy them more, even though maybe I shouldn't, because I know they're practical. I know that shit is really burning, and I enjoy that. Maybe I'm a firebug myself, but yeah, this is not the top tier of King films, but this also isn't the Drek. It's a weak recommend. Like I said, if you like the book, I I don't see what would prevent you from watching this very passable version of the book. My problems lie with the source material. So hearing your fandom about it, yeah, it totally makes sense why you would give it a mild recommend. Mine's a mild not recommend. I don't feel like we're too far apart from this. Mine's a solid not recommend. Yeah, I feel like you got no enjoyment. And I felt like I was... I would have enjoyed it if it had been cut faster. But then again, what would they cut to? If they had cut this movie at the pace I would have wanted, it would have been 40 minutes long. And admittedly, this is around the time that King was doing Tales from the Dark Side and things. That might have worked. Yeah. And I usually try to give whenever I can find it on record King's opinion. Well, he wrote Stanley Mann a letter and said that he'd read the script and it was one of the best adaptations of his works ever. (laughs) Yeah, but he also hated what Kubrick did, so his praise counts for so little to me. Well, what that tells to me is that he likes somebody that does exactly what he wrote. Yes. Yeah, that's the sense I get from King. If you copy him, he will like you. Well, again, that's after he read the script. After he saw the movie, he started pissing on it, would say to the press, it was a resounding failure. Wow. He said it wasn't a total waste of film, but a failure. And that pissed off the director who would go on record saying that a man of King's wealth shouldn't say slanderous remarks about filmmakers and attack these films. King's a little bit of a huckster, though. I've noticed in reading tons of interviews with him at this point, before the movie's out, he's always going to talk it up because he gets a percentage. Once the movie's out, he's then going to follow the course of public opinion. I mean, I think he's actually said some motions about how he never likes any of the works. They never hold a, a, a candle, if you'll forgive the metaphor, to the actual source novels. That basically, he can't stand to see what's on the page be turned into any kind of film, no matter how well they do it. Unless it's the Shining TV miniseries. Yeah, he has praised some things 
especially in more recent times. There are certain things he's loving under the dome, the TV series. Okay. But again, he gets a cut. <laughs> I haven't heard too much of him loving any adaptation. So when we get to those movies, I guess we'll discuss that. I know that, yes, him loving that TV miniseries Shining above this Kubrick is already making his opinion count for nothing with me. And this was not intended to be the end of Firestarter. It kind of simmered for a few years, but in the late 90s, they were trying to do Firestarter, the TV series. I knew TV. I mean, that makes sense, right? This is an incredible Hulk premise here. Of course, just going around town to town. It's what they tried to do with Carrie with that 2002 movie. Yeah, why not have Charlie go around burning up people as she helps them with their personal problems. Yeah, it never got picked up, but Charlie does return on TV in the early 2000s, 2001, made for sci-fi, mm. Firestarter Rekindled. And we'll be there to watch it. Yes, that is the movie we're covering next week. Not only is that bad news for you fans, but it also means we're going to delay Insidious because... Yes, we know Insidious is coming out this weekend, and yes, we're going to cover it, but because we want to finish out with Firestarter first, we're going to do that and get to Chapter 3 in two weeks. And this Friday, for donors, we have the Jurassic Park review of The Lost World coming out, and we're very excited to be talking about that Spielberg dinosaur film even if it doesn't have the reputation of the first. I've never seen it, so I was curious. You know, there's few Spielberg movies I haven't ever seen before, but that was one that I knew nothing about. We really appreciate your support. It's what allows us to do this show for free every Tuesday. We never take a week off. We haven't taken a week off for the holidays in years. So you can find out all the details on how to support this show and keep now playing operating by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. And just a reminder, the silver level donation is the Indiana Jones films plus Goonies. The gold level donation is all those plus the Jurassic Park quadrilogy. We're going to be doing Jurassic World when it hits theaters, plus Michael Crichton's earlier theme park movies, Westworld and Future World, or... For the platinum donors who want to go a bit further, you're listening to Firestarter, maybe you want some horror. Poltergeist is being taken out of the vault because of the reboot that came out a couple weeks ago. You can get all four of those reviews out now with a donation of $35 or more that also gets you the silver and gold podcasts. And you do that by clicking the support button at nowplayingpodcast.com. So we'll talk to you Friday with The Lost World and Tuesday with Firestarter Rekindled. And Stuart Jacob, thank you for joining me. Until next time, keep the home fires burning. Did we get the audio? We got it. We did? My God! Holy Christ, I knew something was gonna happen, but I had no idea. And we got it, we got it all on tape, and it's good enough to stand up in court right up in the goddamn Supreme Court! What are you looking so miserable about? Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. I saw you die. No, you saw me burn. It's far more painful. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original novels. He has no idea how interesting his life is about to become. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to hear our reviews of other Stephen King movies, such as Carrie, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and dozens more in our archive section. Stop what you're doing and open your laptop. 
Also at our site, hear reviews of other films such as Maniac, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Riddick, Friday the 13th, The Avengers Films, Star Trek, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. You like Superman? I like that more. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Go now. I said you can go now. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. We don't have any more money. We don't have anything left to sell. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Do you believe in destiny? No, sir. I believe in cash flow. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. We're ready when you are, Charlene. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. He's overdone it before and wound up in bed. He's doing something to his brain. Could kill him. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. A little nervous about this. What if I go on a bad trip or something? The Firestarter films are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. You like having plausible deniability, don't you? Well, from a legal standpoint, yes. Then don't ask too many questions. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You see, it's easy to tell a lie when you don't know what the truth is. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media Production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. You're all I've got in this world, but I'm happy about that because I'm crazy about you. I'm crazy about you too, Daddy. In the weekly world news about spontaneous combustion and just being completely mystified and enthralled with the thought of spontaneous combustion. Not a reliable source, the weekly world news. They also talk a lot about Bat Boy. <laughs> hey, he's real. He was doing a Dallas con recently. <laughs> Sidebar, I, I used to be afraid I was going to spontaneously combust because of those articles. I'm like, wait, that can happen? Did you watch Spinal Tap too much? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it, it was frightening. If they didn't know why, what caused them to burn, who's to say you aren't next? <laughs> Folks, just consider this a warm-up for the Firestarter books and nachos. It really is coming. <laughs> Heather Locklear's character, Vicky... <laughs> I just now realized I'm starting with a character barely in it. That's my lead. Yeah. I'm like, Heather Locklear. Yeah. What, what? On set all of what? Three days? Uh, TJ Hooker was a bitch to shoot. But eventually they're captured by John Rainbird, a one-eyed shop assassin played by George C. Scott. Native American character? Rainbird? I... I think he actually does have some blood lineage to that. I know he was with Sasha and Littlefeather at any rate. <laughs> he sent her to collect his Oscar because he wouldn't appear. 
Or was that Brando? That was Brando. Oh, you're right. Yeah, Brando sent a Native American to get his. Oh, I get those two confused all the time. And they won their Oscars around the same time. Yeah, he won for Patton. And he refused the nomination, but still won. That wasn't Sashin? No, that's Brando. Oh, okay. All right, well, anyway, cut that. All right. <laughs> Ironically, she's playing the E.T. video game. Is that what that was? I, I knew I recognized <laughs> those sounds. That didn't come from a Coleco, though. I had a ColecoVision, and let me tell you, they would have convinced me to do anything. I, I love my ColecoVision. You'd be burning it up. Yeah, I was actually really excited. I remember that was the age where I was like, I'm too old for Atari. I want Coleco now. Yeah, Coleco had better graphics. They were better. So, yeah, I was... I'm right there with you. Like, I can't relate to her because she's, like, not wanting to play and not willing to be bought off. I could have so easily been bought off with this. You still can't. Our donation drive's going on. (laughs) Until next time, keep the home fires burning, which is not a line from this movie, but there are no good quotable lines from this movie, so I just found quotes about fire. (laughs) That's not in the second one either. I noticed that wasn't in this one. (laughs) 